1: Good evening and welcome to another edition of Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick. My co-host Larry Dersham and I have a great show for you tonight as always. But because this is our Christmas edition, one of the questions we've been fielding for weeks is one that families are asking all across the globe. How do we keep families together during COVID holiday season? Given all of the restrictions, the distance, the the anxiety, everything that comes along with the holiday season to begin with, much less in the season of a pandemic. So, the pandemic has impacted both health and wealth. That's right, we have suffered physically and financially. But part of that physical suffering that people don't talk enough about is it emotionally. And this is not just due to the anxiety of job loss. For many people, social distance has produced a sense of social isolation, even though it's just physical separation. I mean, let's face it, there's a big difference and a big difference indeed during the holidays between socializing in your living room versus in a Zoom room, no matter how well you know the people in all those other little squares. Proximity creates chemistry, and let's face it, absence isolates. So families have become quite creative this season, coming up with ways to cross the distance. From plexiglass to patio parties, weather permitting, which we actually can do here in San Diego, to exploring creative ways to gather together. That's exactly what we're doing collectively. And the reason we can do it now, and we couldn't do it in March, is we have come a long way in understanding how to stay safe. We are masked, gloves, sanitized, and socially distanced. Regarding face coverings, we now know the difference between a bandana and an N95. Now, in my family, we wear those hats with the attached plastic shields. We all look like beekeepers. But knowledge is power. Smart social distancing routines have made us COVID savvy. We know how to gather together safely. And I'll tell you, many families have even gone so far as to mandate COVID testing. You even have to do that right and time that right to be able to get that together. In fact, some families have done Uh, Voluntary quarantining each of them for two weeks before the gathering to ensure a safe maskless Christmas. Now, Larry, I don't know how, uh, how you and your family are doing it, but I have heard all sorts of machinations of this going on across the nation as to how we can actually strategize gathering safely. Any ideas?
2: Well, my daughter told me about an idea that uh, she gets together with some of her uh, her girlfriends. Uh, you know, she's married, she's got a family. But uh, her old friends, they still get together uh, uh, several times a year. And they had this idea of a gift exchange. I think they do a gift exchange every year. But the idea, uh, I was really proud of my daughter. She said, we are going to buy gifts only in small businesses we will not go to the big box stores to buy our gifts. We're going to emphasize that, get really unique gifts. In fact, when you think about it, you'll probably find more unique gifts in the small businesses than you would in the big box stores.
1: No, I think that's great. And, you know, in terms of gathering together, uh, you know, creatively, we want to host a celebration, not a super spreader event. And that also is probably less likely if we avoid the the big stores, just for the meantime, especially if, you know, we all have our beloved elderly uh, family members. And we want to protect them as well. You know, one silver lining, and you've heard me say this before, COVID has impacted families a different way this year, and it has made us appreciate family more. And that even goes for that one colorful character around the Christmas dinner table that wants to talk politics. So, you know, we don't have to ban red hats or political conversation. Instead, instead of counting seats, let's count our blessings that we have so many chairs around the Christmas dinner table. Now, when it comes to what your daughter is celebrating, however, you know, do we have small businesses, large businesses? I do have to say that we in San Diego, as with other jurisdictions, have suffered a little bit of legal whiplash this last week with businesses and restaurants in particular, quickly opening, then quickly closing. And we have a uh, sort of, um, we, we're holding a ruling in abeyance now while, while a higher court has reviewed it. Um, a, a, a ruling that really made, made headlines because it talked about strip clubs, but actually was applicable to businesses that have restaurant service. So we're not just talking about strip clubs, we were talking about all sorts of restaurants. But now, maybe those that opened for the last two days, Now I understand they're closed once again. Larry, what's the latest here?
2: This week has been a whirlwind, Wendy. Uh, Judge Wolfel, he's a Superior Court judge here in the Southern California area. On Tuesday, I'm just talking about last Tuesday, December 15th, he said it's okay for strip clubs to open. They're an essential business. Well, those strip clubs happened to have the two that were the uh, litigants had restaurants in them. And so... That was great. So people were thinking, okay, does that apply to restaurants too? And so then on Thursday, December 17th, two days later, the judge clarified his decision. And he said, yes, this applies to all restaurants. And I could even remember hearing on the radio just uh, uh, yesterday that uh, supervisor Jim Desmond said, this is great. Now the restaurants can open. But you wouldn't you know it, on Friday, December 18th, that's yesterday, the state did an emergency uh, appeal and they got a court of appeal to stay that order of the superior court judge. So we're back to lockdown.
1: Well, you know, it is true that San Diego restaurants have been temporarily stripped of their right to operate, so to speak. However, isn't there a middle ground we can advocate for? I mean, one of the distinguishing factors that, among many uh, that were argued in the case of the two strip clubs is that unlike ordering chicken wings from Hooters or something like that, where you can actually take it out, maybe you go to the a restaurant like that for more than the food. But unlike that, it, what these two clubs were offering as businesses, you can't do it curbside, you certainly can't deliver it, and you can't bring it outside, you can't have parents driving kids past the strip tease. So those three considerations made those clubs different from restaurants in general. Yet it was almost the vehicle, the unlikely vehicle through which wholesome restaurants of all types were able to briefly reopen. But if the concern is the spread of COVID, which it is, um, one of the things that judges have been asking across the nation is, is where is the nexus? Where is the nexus between restaurants being open, even if it's just patio service? and ICU hospital beds. And if you can't say anybody's catching COVID, or at least you can't prove it with any certainty from restaurants that are, again, they're a sea of plexiglass when you go into these places. Servers are masked, gloved, sanitized, socially distanced. If we can't prove that anybody's actually catching COVID from these establishments, that by by the way, was one of the things um, argued by the two strip clubs. If you can't prove it, Should that be a basis to close down? That's just an interesting legal argument that's being made. And Larry, I understand there's a new deadline of next Wednesday to come up with some new arguments to continue to argue this.
2: That's right. It's a new deadline. And Wednesday is the date where these uh, judges are, excuse me, the lawyers for the strip clubs have to come back in and prove why they should be uh, remain open. But I would just say that, again, this is an example of overreach. The restaurants and the small businesses, what do they do? You're open one day, and before you can even get your tables or your food supplies up, you're closed again. Nobody can survive that. And I just think that there's something more going on uh, about this. I think it's about control, about social control. Uh, Did you see that video, Wendy, of this little two-year-old? A family was flying on United Airlines, and the two-year-old, it showed a video of them trying to put a mask on their two-year-old. She refused, and eventually they kicked the whole family off the plane. A two-year-old.
1: Yeah, and you know, that that begs the question that we were talking about earlier is, can you prove that anybody would be likely to catch COVID from a two-year-old, assuming the little... A little baby was even infected. Um, And that goes again to, you know, we've come a long way since March. When we closed everything down in March, we didn't know how it was spread. We didn't know how to protect ourselves. Part of the reason more people are are comfortable venturing out nowadays is we do know much more about the virus, how it's transmitted, how to protect ourselves. We know the difference between an N95 and a bandana, the, the example I gave earlier. And if we know those differences, shouldn't those be taken into consideration in deciding when we will or won't enforce these kinds of rules?
2: Exactly. I think that's true. So true. And I think that, you know, of course, we're, we're going to fight the appeal through the appellate uh, process, like next Wednesday, these restaurants and the strip clubs will be back in court with their appeal. But I also have been thinking about the idea. What about civil disobedience? What if they had mass civil disobedience? You open your restaurant and you call your opening a protest, How would they go against that? Now, I know the restaurants that have liquor licenses would be extra worried, and maybe they shouldn't do that. And what if customers were to sign liability waivers? They say, I'm going to eat here, and I promise uh, if I eat here, if I get COVID, I won't use the ICU or something like that. I I don't know if that would work legally.
1: Well— they 'd be fined, and they, well they 'd get seasoned as this letters, and then they 'd probably be fined and We know that because those actually that actually has been taking place um, however it 's an interesting point that you make, Larry, because both strip clubs uh, were actually open in violation of the the stay at home, the closed down order um, and that me. is actually one of the things that they used to argue all of the the precautions they put into place they had the, the ruling calls them artists, um, the dancers were fifteen feet away from patrons the the counter argument to that is, yeah, but the patrons are right next to each other, you know, and this is a tough time to be a public official because you're basically taking the advice of the health departments in deciding whether or not to keep businesses open and closed. Um, You know, we got to wrap up the first half. Gosh, we could talk about this forever, Um, but folks do not touch that dial because when we return after the break, You are going to meet a person that might just be the nation's leading authority on how to protect your children and family from being exposed to harmful content on the Internet. You do not want to miss this. You are listening to Today with Dr. Wendy. We will be back in a flash. As a career prosecutor, I am consistently worried about pandemic restrictions and stay-at-home orders, increasing exploitation of the vulnerable. And that, of course, includes children who are uniquely vulnerable in so many ways. How can we keep our precious young ones safe, especially from cyber predators? Well, thankfully, our next guest has some answers. Larry, who do we have on the line?
2: Yes, Wednesday, uh, Wendy. I'm so pleased to introduce Donna Rice-Hughes. Donna is president and CEO of Enough is Enough, and is an international. she's an internationally known internet safety expert. She's an author, a speaker, and a film producer. And since 1994, she's been pioneering, a pioneering leader on the front lines of the U.S. efforts to make the internet safer for children and families. And she's done such amazing work. We want to hear what she has to say. I'm so pleased to have her. Welcome to
3: the show, Donna. Thank you, Larry. And thank you, Wendy. It's great to be with you.
1: Donna, as a trial lawyer for more years than I'm going to admit, because I'm afraid a listener will do the math. uh, Let's just say I've litigated human trafficking, rape cases, sex crimes. I'm well aware of the harmful effects that internet pornography has on families, especially children. But Donna, you, this is your area of expertise. This is your wheelhouse. How bad has the problem been during the pandemic?
3: Well, the problem of sexual exploitation of children during the pandemic has skyrocketed. Um, the cases of uh, child pornography were already at pandemic levels. Um, there were uh, 45 million new videos and, um, and images of young children reported before the b- pandemic had been started. And the first month after lockdown, it went up 63%. Wow. Um, the month after lockdown, reports of sex trafficking rose forty percent. Eighty percent increase in parents searching for help with cyberbullying. And here's the thing: predators prey. And when do you know this? Because you see this. Predators prey where children are playing. And so when you've got lockdown and virtual learning, and also kids spending a lot more time online. Um, with entertainment and everything while their parents are trying to juggle working from home and everything else. Who else is going to be online? The sexual predators. Why? Because that is the prime place to meet and to groom kids. Now, pornography has always been an issue and it still is. In fact, um, kids under the age of 10 now account for 22% of hardcore Corn consumption among youth. So, yeah, it's bad, and it's been bad, and it's continuing to, to increase. So this is something that every parent needs to be aware of and be alarmed by and really learn how to take action and be a fantastic cyber parent.
2: Well, Donna, I work with uh, and Wendy too. Wendy's our chief in, chief instructor for the National Law Center for Children and Families, and we also fight child ex- sexual exploitation. And I just wanted to get your thoughts about there's a new uh, program's going through our school now called Comprehensive Sexuality Education, or just CSE for short. And basically, yeah. a lot of the parents are arguing that's too much, too soon. Explicit type graphics and so forth, and it's going so low on the grade level. It actually kind of start them even in elementary school uh, sometimes. Yes. So, what are your thoughts on the CSE? Is that good or bad, or what should we do?
3: Well, I think uh, parents need to be aware of what the curriculums, um, what's in these curriculums, and to stand up and, and to speak out. From what I've heard and seen, it's very disturbing from my standpoint. Um, and you know, that, that's really, it's not my area of expertise, the curriculum, but look, here's the thing that the sexual exploitation of children is coming in from all types of places that parents may not be aware of. And certainly school curriculums are one of them. But I still say that, uh, what's happening on the internet is absolutely devastating and Kids are not immune. Even smart, good, uh, well-mannered kids are sitting ducks for sexual predators, traffickers, and pornographers. They're no matter what you
1: You've mentioned something, and I'm going to put it into a really concise sentence that hopefully uh, we can remember as, as parents. Predators prey where children play. That is yes. so powerful, and that is so, it's memorable, and it's important. Uh, do you have like a, you know, top? five lists of things that parents can do, given this this reality. We know this in real life. That's why we watch our kids when they're at the playground. But we forget the same principle operates online.
3: Well, that's right. And in fact, it's even more, they're more vulnerable online, because in the physical world, there are usually some type of boundaries around those kids, right? Or supervision, or supervision. World, there yeah. is no boundary. It's It's anything and everything goes, all the good and all the bad. So, yeah, we actually just put out five steps to protect your kids online. Got a lot of information at internetsafety101.org. But I would say the top things are to recognize your kids are not immune and to use the software technology that is available uh, by, by most providers on every single Internet device that your kid uses. That's the gaming devices, the smartphone, the laptops, you name it. Because if they're connected to the Internet, they can get all the bad stuff and all the bad guys can, can reach them. So mm. two key parts of that are to turn on the filters and to use monitoring technology. It's kind of the, like the yin and the yang of software. Also, you can use time-limiting tools. And for younger kids, I don't even recommend that they're on the Internet you can you can they can play games they can do a lot of things with without actually being connected online or playing games with strangers and that sort of thing. The other is to have regular communications with your kids about what they 're doing who they 're talking to, and build that atmosphere of trust because chances are they 're going to get into some uh dangerous water out there, and the parent needs to be the first line of defense, and also that trusted adult that the child comes to.
2: Donna, are you getting any cooperation, for example, from the Department of Justice or local authorities in this fight?
3: Well, it, it, that that's kind of a loaded question. Uh, the Department of Justice and uh, state uh, U.S. Attorneys and State's Attorneys General are very aggressively focused on child pornography which we now call uh, child sex abuse images and also on trafficking and that's where they're spending 95% of their time and also uh, tracking down predators. However, we have not had any of the hardcore pornography laws enforced since General Ashcroft and Pornography is one of the biggest issues that kids are struggling with, like I said. And this isn't your father's pornography from yesteryear. This isn't softcore stuff. This is hardcore. It's strangulation. It's teen rape. It's just things that I can't even say on the air. And this is really, in in effect, becoming the sex educator, uh, the de facto sex educator for many kids. And so it's conditioning them, conditioning their attitudes, their expectations, for both boys and girls, this isn't just a guy thing. This is a girl thing. Very young girls are getting hooked on this as well.
1: You know, how is it, Donna, that so many parents and, and even the older siblings and teachers, and you can think of all the adult authority figures that young people have in their lives, how is it that so many children that are so young are able to be on the internet on these devices as it is now. I understand that it doesn't matter if a parent doesn't buy their children devices; they'll just go to school and use their friends' devices. But isn't there, right. aren't there any sort of rules or regulations in some of these, you know, um, educational institutions that ban those devices, or are, do we just live in a day and age where it's expected that every eight-year-old is going to have a cell phone?
3: Well, um, I think it really depends on the school and the school district. I will tell you that in 1997, I guess it was, I've been doing this a really long time, that we we got a federal law passed that requires schools and libraries to filter uh, the internet from child pornography and pornography, period. If they take government money for their internet, they're supposed to be filtering. Now, fast forward to where we are now, You've got Google donating Chromebooks like candy, you know, to schools across the country that's not filtered typically. You also now have Wi-Fi and kids, like you said, Wendy, bringing their own devices into school. So we really need to look at this again from a federal perspective to get that law updated.
2: Wow, that is up. Do you, are you circulating a petition now Donna I understand and what is about what yes. is it about
3: Yes well we're actually doing a couple but the one we just launched is we're calling on the Department of Justice and state prosecutors to investigate Pornhub Good. Pornhub is the largest pornographer in online in the world and it has been discovered as of recent that they also have child rape content on their site and videos of trafficked victims and it goes on and on and on. So our recommendation to DOJ is to investigate Pornhub for child pornography, for trafficking and also for obscene pornography. We have got to start getting this pornography enforced, these laws enforced. This is hardcore graphic content. It is not protected speech. Most of the content that's online that drive these companies like Pornhub are that the the content is is prosecutable. The pornography that they're marketing is prosecutable. And and it's available for free to any kid, can just go there and get it.
1: Donna, we have to leave it there, unfortunately. Um, I'm gonna sort of try to end this with a silver lining, however. Thank God there are people like you fighting this fight on the front lines, protecting the children of this world. So thank God there are people like you, Donna. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, And thank you for all of our listeners for joining us as well. This is our last chance to say Merry Christmas to all of you. Have a wonderful, safe weekend. Please join us next week for more of Today with Dr. Wendy, Headlines with a Silver Lining. Have a great one, and God bless you.